Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I, I hope you're doing well. I hope you, wherever you are, you are, are hanging in there. I know a lot of people have been sick, whether they've had COVID or, or something else that's been going around. Uh, I feel you. We've been, uh, we were online last week, obviously, and we'll be online uh, for the next few weeks and just kind of like TBD on what the future holds for all of us. But Kelly and I have been talking and planning. And so we will, we will let you know, uh, as things uh, change and hopefully things get better. Uh, I've been sick for the last two, two weeks, believe it or not, I was sick and then I thought I was feeling better. And then I got sick again. And then I thought I was feeling better. And then I think I got sick again. I don't know. I don't even know what it was. I don't even remember what it's like to feel good anymore. So, uh, if that's you, I, you know, hang in there. Uh, we're going to get through this together. And if you're out there just thriving, then I'm super happy for you. So, <laughs> so uh, that's great. I know some people out there are just like doing awesome and uh, I commend you if that's you. Uh, but the rest of us, we are, we're, we're just we're just making it day by day, 2020, 2022 um, on COVID year two of um, back at home and all the all the rest. But hopefully things will, will get better. This is the, the second week of Epiphany. It's also MLK weekend. A lot is going on. Thank you to Kelly for uh, kicking off the season of Epiphany and doing the podcast and leading our conversation last week and talking about this idea of refinement. I think that was a great place to to start us. And we are we're going to be in the Gospel of John this week, uh, John chapter two, uh, starting in verse one. If you want to follow along, I am reading out of the Voice translation this week. Three days later, they all went to celebrate a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was invited together with him and his disciples. While they were celebrating, the wine ran out, and Jesus' mother hurried over to her son. Mary said, The hosts are on the brink of embarrassment. There are many guests, and there's no more wine. And Jesus said, Dear woman, is it our problem they miscalculated when buying wine and inviting guests? My time has not yet arrived. But she turned to the servants. Mary said, do whatever my son tells you. In that area, there were six massive stone water pots that each could hold 30 to 20 to 30 gallons. They were typically used for Jewish purification rites. And Jesus's instructions were clear. He said, fill each water pot with water until it's ready to spill over the top then fill a cup and deliver it to the head waiter. They did exactly as they were instructed, and after tasting the water that had become wine, the head waiter couldn't figure out where such wine came from, even though the servants knew. And he called the bridegroom in amazement, and he said, This wine is delectable. Why would you save the most exquisite fruit of the vine? A host would generally serve the good wine first, and then when his inebriated guests don't care or notice, he would serve inferior wine. You have held back the best for last. Jesus performed this miracle, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. They did not know how this happened. When the disciples and the servants witnessed this miracle, their faith blossomed. The word of the Lord. All right. Wow. What a, what a wild couple of weeks it has been since Christmas. As I was just even thinking about this weekend being MLK weekend, and I was thinking kind of all the things that have happened since uh, we were together on Christmas Eve. I was like, oh my gosh, there's, there's been a lot that's happened. Not, not only is our world dealing with Omicron, and uh, many of us have been sick, and we've had loved ones who have been sick. We've just gone through 
an incredible amount of political strife, you know, remembering uh, the January 6th attack at the Capitol, uh, the stuff that's been going on with the Supreme Court, uh, the Congress and Senate uh, debating over the Voting Rights Act and everything with uh, Kirsten Sinema and Joe, Joe Manchin uh, that has been going. In the last two weeks, we, we lost Desmond Tutu, uh, Betty White, and Bob Saget. Uh, there is so much uh, going on in our world right now that if we step back and think about it for a second, it can just, it's, at least for me, it's just, uh, it's incredibly overwhelming. And so kind of just want to mention that at the top that as we talk about this this text and as we meet on, on Sunday to talk about this on Zoom, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff floating around and our current context that uh, can can weigh on us, and I just wanted to to kind of name all that and include all of that in our conversation for Sunday. And as we go into, we continue into the season of Epiphany, and we're really asking, you know, what is God revealing in us in our world? What is God revealing in us in our world? Uh, another way we can put this is, uh, what it, what is God like? What is, what is our experience of God like? Given everything that's going on in our world, giving, uh, given uh, the trajectory of our lives together, what, what is our experience of God? What is that experience like? And that, that is going to be different for, for all of us, right? And it often changes throughout the course of our life. And I think that's worth a conversation worth having, and, and one that the season of Epiphany um, prompts us to, to ask, I think. So let's, uh, let's dive into this story. And I, I just want to p- point out a few things that, uh, might be helpful for our conversation on, on Sunday. So this story for me is, is one of the most memorable, for some reason, one of the most memorable gospel stories for me. The wedding at Cana is, is interesting for, I think a variety of reasons. I, I like how Mary, she's the first person that's introduced to us in this story, and she sees the importance of, of what's going on, that this party is, is not going to have uh, enough wine. And that might seem like a, a simple observation. When, you know, the, the voice translation text here uh, goes a little bit deeper and hints at why this would be a problem in its, in its context. And it mentions that there would be embarrassment. And we talk a lot about the honor-shame dynamics of the first century here. And so Mary would have seen that this party running out of wine would have brought a tremendous amount of, of shame or, or taken away honor from the family that did not have enough wine uh, for this particular wedding feast. And there's a lot of um, cultural context that goes into that, whether or not uh, people brought wine for the wedding feast, and so it would it would remove some of that honor because it would say something like you didn't have uh, enough people to bring enough wine uh, for the wedding feast. And Mary noticing this is, I think, a really powerful observation. It shows a level of care, concern, and compassion for um, not only restoring the dignity but preventing the. Um, the loss of honor in this uh, particular situation. And we're not really sure wh- what the relationship would have been between Mary and Jesus and who was getting married, but we, we sort of presume, uh, we, we know that Cana of Galilee 
and where this is probably located is about nine miles north of uh, where Jesus is from. So we we're, we're still have to remember that these are uh, small villages with only a few handfuls of families. And when families, uh, when two people would get married, it was like families coming together. So, so we could presume in this situation that everybody here would be relatively close to each other. And so you have the uniting of these two families, and we're not sure how Mary and Jesus might be related or connected to the two families that are getting married. They could be really close. They could be kind of tangential in the, in the village. But either way, we know that they're pretty close. And so Mary shows this like high level of awareness and concern to uh, have this family maintain their, their honor and their dignity. And it kind of reminds me, many of you probably listened to the 99% Invisible podcast that considers, it's a podcast that considers the, the intention and thoughtfulness of design elements in our world that go uh, completely unnoticed, unnoticed, like really boring stuff, like the height of a curb or anything like that. Who designed something that seems so insignificant? But it seems so insignificant because it just works. It's 99% invisible. And for some reason, what Mary does here seems a little bit the same way, right? She, she brings this concern to Jesus. She's like, hey, this is what's going to happen. And they're, <laughs> they're kind of throwing a Hail Mary pass here Hail Mary, uh, to save uh, this wedding party so that no one else notices what's going on that they and the servants know that uh, Jesus is going to supply this wine. Uh, but for everybody else at the party, it'll go completely unnoticed. So she sees this shortage, goes to Jesus for a solution so that this family would not be shamed for running out of wine. There, would be, there wouldn't be a social embarrassment. And uh, as I was reading some commentaries this week, there were some instances where scholars were arguing that this was um, a completely unproductive miracle, that this was sort of demonstrating that God is sort of reigns God's lavishness on a wedding feast and sort of supplies more than enough wine, wine on wine on wine, which is totally true in one sense, right? Like it's way more wine than the party would ever need. It's six of these 30-gallon uh, pots of wine in the end. But this miracle is not insignificant or unproductive in the sense of Mary making sure that this family maintains their honor and dignity. On first glance, that might seem like a completely insignificant or an unproductive miracle, as uh, these scholars were arguing. But on the other hand, I think saving and restoring uh, the dignity and honor of a person or a family is no small thing. It shows a deep social awareness and compassion for a neighbor, friend, or family, whoever, whatever the relationship was, in seeing uh, their well-being as interrelated, that everybody is interrelated. And if somebody, if somebody loses honor and you can prevent that, if somebody's dignity is at risk, and you can prevent, uh, you can you can help in an instance. That that is no small small thing. Andrea and I finished the uh, final season of the show Afterlife on Netflix, and in this show, this the main character is uh, grappling with the loss of his wife and um, how to how to continue to live in in the wake of such a devastating loss when your world falls apart, and. 
what is without giving too much away, what is interesting is that the the main character in the show finally comes to the realization that his well-being is uh, connected to the well-being of those in his community, whether that's uh, a stranger or a sick child, that the mutuality between them, it's not that his suffering goes away by seeing the suffering of others or that it puts it into perspective, but for, for the moment, they are connected, that his, his suffering connects with the suffering of the world. In, in our story here with uh, Mary, we see something that's, I think, kind of similar. Uh, whether or not her, her honor and shame would have been connected directly to that of the host of the wedding party, uh, we don't know. But she sees uh, the potential for uh, suffering, and she, she acts, and she calls Jesus to act. So I don't, I don't agree with the scholars that say this is just a completely unproductive miracle, that uh, however small the act of empathy and compassion uh, might seem, even in our, our own daily lives, right, uh, that no, no small act of empathy and compassion is, is insignificant. Uh, I just, I don't know, I just don't buy that argument that uh, restoring and saving somebody's uh, dignity and honor in a given situation uh, makes it somehow an unproductive miracle. I think maybe sometimes uh, when we think about this miracle story and this sign of Jesus being the first of the Gospel of John, we, we compare it to the healings and the demon possession and, and those types of stories in uh, the synoptic gospels where Jesus is um, healing someone that's sick. And we, we see a story like this, say, oh, it's like water into wine. It's, a, it's at a wedding. Um, we think of weddings in our, in our current you know, context in the 21st century, and it seems a little, uh, it seems a little lavish in the sense that uh, it's not completely uh, necessary, right? So, oh, it's just Jesus, you know, turning water into wine and making so much wine for this party. That's super fun. Uh, but when we see it in the context of restoring uh, and maintaining someone's honor and dignity, uh, I think it changes the way that we um, see the importance of perhaps this miracle that um, it might seem like a small act uh, for one person or one family, but just because you're restoring or saving someone's honor and dignity for one person does not make it insignificant. It might make it, um, it might make it in some ways more significant rather than uh, universalizing it. So I do think it is significant that Jesus's first miracle in the Gospel of John is wine for people at a wedding. So what Mary and Jesus do here in uh, saving someone's honor, while that's important, it it is worth noting that the context is wine for people at a wedding feast. So when we're in the season of Epiphany and we're asking questions like, what is God like or what is our experience of God like? Um, I think it is worth uh, noting in talking about how the experience of uh, what a wedding represents, uh, both in the first century and for us, uh, says something about uh, who God is in the world and how God's um, vision for life or the experience of God is experienced uh, by us in in real life. And I think 
we obviously have a whole range of experiences uh, at, at weddings, um, whether that's your own wedding uh, or that of uh, a close friend or a family member, that weddings uh, that mean something and symbolize something to us. The experience of the wedding is uh, an incredibly powerful one, even if uh, first century weddings and 21st century weddings are uh, incredibly different experiences depending on um, your context. So for me, I it, it made me think about the the idea and the concept of of joy in in relation to what the experience of a, of a wedding is like and how how to how to talk about the experience of God or or what God is like experienced in the world how it could be uh, expressed by talking about the word joy. And I've been thinking about this word joy, not only in light of our lectionary text this week and the theme of uh, epiphany and asking the questions of what is our experience of God like? What is God revealing in our world and in ourselves? But I was thinking about this word um, since Desmond Tutu passed a few weeks ago, and I, I returned to this book that came out a few years ago uh, called The Book of Joy, which is a series of conversations between Tutu and the Dalai Lama. And what's so evident in their interactions is how much joy they have, both in their friendship and relationship, uh, but just for, for life. They, they have a, a deep dimension of joy throughout all that they have endured, what they've endured individually uh, through apartheid South Africa for Desmond Tutu and for a life in exile for the Dalai Lama. And their conversations reflect... Uh, all of these dimensions of of joy in the midst of hardship and and suffering and everything in between, whether that's uh, the physical uh, ailments and illnesses that they've both dealt dealt with, uh, to to their really uh, intense and fragmented uh, political circumstances that they've both had to to be spiritual leaders in the midst of, and we're obviously still living in incredibly difficult times and circumstances. We're still in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, we have uh, p- politics in our country that are, are deeply, deeply fragmented. And we're also at the beginning of the year. It's, it's the beginning of the year uh, where uh, some people set uh, lofty uh, New Year's resolutions and, and goals for themselves. And I saw this a lot this particular year. I, I don't know if it's just a season that we're in, uh, or if we've kind of gr- grown tired of the New Year resolution thing, but I saw a lot of people being really cynical um, about the New Year, and, and there was a New York Times article about how we should cancel uh, New Year's going forward, and there are folks that are really cynical about the people <laughs> that set lofty resolutions, and then there's a there's a debate on whether um, you should sort of strive for more in the New Year, New Year or just be grateful for what you already have, but I think it's important to to note that we can have such we don't have to be uh, consigned and and to these binaries uh, that you're either grateful or ungrateful you're either uh, cynical or optimistic that we can experience a whole range of emotions in in a moment or or in a day um, that we can even have seemingly contradictory uh, feelings and dimensions to the experiences that we have but it's really 
um, easy. And I think in our particular time where there's there's so much information, we've we've gone through so much. People are experiencing uh, a lot of different ways to to look at the really difficult circumstances that we are collectively going through. That it can be incredibly comforting or easy for people to um, segment people into these binaries. Okay, this is the grateful group. This is the ungrateful group. Here's the resolutions group. Here's the no resolutions group. Here's the uh, cynical group, and here's the optimistic group. But one thing that is evident in this particular book by um, the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu is that uh, joy is something that holds and undergirds uh, an entire way of being that encompasses uh, so a numerous depth dimension to to the experience of what it is to be human. So you can be joyful while having a variety of different emotions. It's like as if joy like is this wide, wide uh, body of water that is uh, is able to contain and hold uh, all of these different um, ships and dimensions. Um, things in the water that exist, and it sort of undergirds their entire experience of life. So um, it's pretty common to hear people say things like, oh, joy is not circumstantial, and that's a pretty easy thing to say. Uh, but it's a different prospect uh, to talk about joy as a, as a full way of being, um, a full embodiment of well-being that covers a whole spectrum of emotions, feelings, and experiences. I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but that this um, being of joy is, is not one particular kind of emotion and feeling, that in our joy, we can have a whole range of things. So for example, uh, words that they use, and maybe this is another thing that we can talk about on Sunday. What other words... In, in feelings and uh, emotions, have have you experienced, or do you um, do you see the human experience can have um, while also sort of being joyful again as a way of well being? Uh, this uh, I keep thinking of it as a as a body of water, but I don't know if that's the best uh, image to have. Uh, but for example, they they bring up other words that sort of can kind of encompass compass this. Um, like pleasure, uh, contentment, uh, excitement, relief, uh, radiance, uh, bliss, pride, jubilation, gratitude, um, being happy for somebody else's happiness, uh, rejoicing, enchantment, delight, um, spiritual radiance, uh, and I, I would even put in there, uh, like, you can have a sort of uh, joy in deep sadness, right? Like, there, there is, like, we have uh, happy, t- happy tears is, an, is another way to, to like, explain that. Uh, I was just thinking last night, because there's a show that, um, the show that makes me maybe the most uh, emotional, but kind of this uh, conflicted, like, happy, happy, sad is uh, the show Afterlife. And... There's there's something about it that's that brings you great joy to watch the experience of these characters, even though there is uh, a well of sadness that goes alongside of it, and um, 
we've, it's an idea that we've talked about before, but it's like our capacity for suffering uh, deepens our capacity for, for love and for empathy. And I think that that's what we see in this story uh, with Mary and Jesus, that they see the potential for, for suffering and for the loss of honor, and it opens up their ability to have compassion on the situation. Uh, I want to read a quote from, um, from the Archbishop in Desmond Tutu uh, from this book. He says, I hope that we can convey to God's children how deeply they are loved, how deeply, deeply precious they are to God. Even the despised refugee whose name no one seems to know. I look at pictures of people fleeing from violence, and there's so much of it. I look at children and say, God is crying, because that is not how God wants us to live. But again, you see, even in those circumstances, you have people who come from other parts of the world to try to help, to try to make things better. And through tears, God begins to smile. And when God sees you and hears how you try to help God's children, God too smiles. The archbishop was beaming as he said this, and he whispered the word smile as if it were the holy name of God. And I think that's a good place for us to start wrapping up for this week. As the season of Epiphany calls us to ask the questions of what is God like? What is our world at a fundamental level like? How is God revealing God's self to us and in our world? And to me, as we read this story and talk about it, the idea of deep joy comes up again and again, and not one that forces us into a binary of who we have to be, whether that's grateful or not grateful, cynical or optimistic, that we can have the experience of joy that holds all of what it is to be human, pain and suffering, happiness and jubilation, all simultaneously, that God can, can be crying, as Tutu said, and smiling at the same time, that both of these things are the experience of God in our world, moving us and calling us into lives that restore people's honor and dignity. And as we think about all of the issues that we're going through right now, from political strife to um, just personal uh, illness and conflict, that our experience of joy can undergird all of that complexity. We don't have to be any one particular way. But we still can ask the important questions about how do we experience our world in the midst of it all? Do we experience the world as generous, compassionate, joyous in the midst of difficulty and suffering? And maybe it's worth asking and talking about on Sundays, like what stories were you told about how the world worked? We all have narratives. We all grew up with people telling us, this is what the world's like. Were we told that God and the world is like restoring a wedding feast, keeping the party going. What story, what narratives do we tell ourselves about who we are in the world and how the world works? And in 
as a result, what God is like, what God's relationship to the world is like. Is God distant and far off, or is God crying and smiling and moving alongside us, with us, within us? Is, do we see the world as infused with dimensions of well-being, celebration, joy? Is God striving and calling us to, to live on behalf of those whose, whose honor and well-being uh, might be at risk so that we can all enjoy the party? I don't know. These are questions of epiphany. What is God like? How do we live with joy in really tough times? So I, I hope you're having a, a good weekend. Uh, if you want to join us on Sunday, this will be kind of uh, our launching pad for our conversation. And uh, I look forward to, to seeing you there. And hopefully soon uh, we will keep you updated seeing you in person. And as always, as we approach this week, may we love God, embrace beauty, and live life to the fullest. Be well. Be well.